Yay! My mic was on this time, I swear, guys. I'm sorry. And thanks, Andre, for the internet test. I love knowing what my up and down speed is based on your response rate. No problem, Matthew. That's what I'm here for. That's, that's, hey, all, that's fair, all I'm here for. <laughs> to be fair, Matthew, yours is pretty bad, just in general. <laughs> I think that's more the quality of the mic I'm using, though, than anything. Well, yes, but like when you say test, it is a painfully long time after I do. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> all right, so we're all just awful. Michael's the only one with real internet. That sounds No, about I right. have bad internet as well. So none of My us internet have good today internet. actually cut out three times. Oh, yeah, ours went down last week too. Oh. Are you guys cocks up there? Yeah. They're so bad, man. Just shoot me. I was so mad that we got locked into cocks at this uh, apartment. Do I not yeah. have the worst internet anymore? Don't move to Norfolk. <laughs> Your options are cocks, or you can back end optimum and get like ten up and down. Yeah, I, I thought Verizon was bad, but from what you guys are saying about cocks, it sounds even worse. Um, Andre, the problem is, is that we complain about Verizon, but it is still by far the best. <laughs> oh, well, that also, doesn't fill me with confidence. <laughs> cocks is the best internet if you get gigablast if you get anything else with cox it's terrible and gigablast yeah. costs a fortune so why would you ever do it because like gigablast i think is like 130 a month or something i could be wrong about that but it's like around there and you get really good internet but no one ha no one's paying that much for internet yeah it feels bad man i mean i've got premium 150 which is like third best and that's 60 a month, which is still expensive. Yeah, that's what I'm running to, actually. It's, premium 150 is fine. It's just Cox's customer service isn't great. Oh, yeah. Their customer service is non-existent. Yeah. And it, the problem is, is what we're running is still worse than, like, baseline Verizon Fios. Yeah, it really, it, yeah. It's just bad. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> it's all doomed. That's an interesting cold open to season two of the Homeless for Hire podcast. Welcome back. I'm Michael Inicelli and joined once again this season by Matthew and Andre. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing just fantastic. I'm ready to sit down and record another great episode of the Homeless for Hire podcast talking about the lovely world we live in and all the positive stuff going on right now. I would like to second Andre's statement, but with even more sarcasm, if possible. <laughs> I don't think that's possible, but, you know, we'll, we'll move on from if there. If anyone so. can do it, Matthew can. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so, uh, I mentioned we're into season two, and things are going to be a little different. So, in our previous recordings, we would do one kind of big topic for the whole episode, sometimes two, but typically one. And they'd be about 30 minutes, and, you know... It'd be just kind of us diving into our interests. We're still going to be doing that, but we're going to kind of hit more than one topic an episode, but not go as in-depth. And that's really for two reasons. One, it's because we were going so in-depth, we were basically reading to you news articles, which is interesting, but, you know, you can do that on your own. We weren't really getting our opinion out there all too much. And two, this means instead of me having to edit two episodes, which... Is difficult. I'm only going to have to edit one episode a week because we'll be doing about one 45-minute to an hour-long episode as opposed to two 30-minute episodes a week. And that'll make my life a lot less miserable. So basically, we wanted to put our opinion out there more and Michael was lazy. Just about <laughs> sums it up right there for you. <laughs> That's the only thing I got from that summary. <laughs> Was uh, Michael wanted his opinion more and didn't want to edit as much. <laughs> uh, we're now in throw Michael under the bus mode. Uh, that's yeah, my that's favorite we... mode. Yeah, got to do that at least once an episode. So for today, you know, we're going to kind of be trying out this new format and see how it goes. If it's terrible, you know, season two might come to a premature end. We might just jump straight into season three. Who knows? <laughs> but... Ultimately, what we want to talk about today, and I think what we're going to start with is prefacing this by saying what we're talking about today on this lovely Wednesday the 2nd, I believe it will be when this goes out, uh, is we're talking about stuff that happened last week. So it, there was a lot that kind of took place 
And some of it was lighthearted, some of it was more serious, and we're going to kind of try to balance both of those. But we're going to start with the more serious kind of stuff, just because it's, you know, the stuff that we're going to have bigger opinions on. I think that'll be a good way to start this episode off. So first, I thought it'd be interesting. There's a kind of a, you know, I don't want to say a first in the history of American culture hurricane situation, but kind of similar where we had two hurricanes hitting relatively the same place back to back within a day of each other. And that's, that's a big deal. It's kind of unprecedented. You don't see a lot of times where there's more than one, you know, big hurricane like this. And then of course, one of those hurricanes turned out to be a category four hurricane that hit Louisiana and Texas and could have been really, really bad. Yeah, all things considered, I'd say, you know, we might have actually gotten reasonably lucky because the first one wasn't as bad as we thought it was. And then, yes, Laura turned into a Cat 4, but even that one then ended up shifting a little bit. Um, I mean, there's still a lot of destruction and a lot of people without power. And I don't think they're done with the casualty count yet. Um, So that might rise a little bit, but it isn't as high as we were fearing. So, you know, still really bad and still, you know, a lot of efforts need to be going on, especially in Louisiana, but it could have been a lot worse, I think. Yeah, I'd say the biggest negative takeaway from Laura is just that, in Louisiana specifically, is the sheer amount of property damage and in conjunction with our, our faltering economy and the huge numbers of people unemployed and unable to go out because of COVID, reconstruction's going to be so much harder than it would be normally. And it, it wouldn't be a walk in the park normally either, but at the very least, the 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 human cost of the actual natural disaster seems to be at this moment not as bad as we feared, which is always a great thing. Well, I think Matthew kind of hit it right on the head where, you know, it's still a terrible thing that happened. It's still like a huge disaster for America, but it could have been a lot worse. I've never, you know, I've, I've always been interested in weather since I was young. I've never heard them use the word unsurvivable when describing something related to a hurricane. Usually it's, you know, disastrous or severe or something like that i've never heard unsurvivable as the weather warning and that's what they said with the storm surge and it turned out to be very bad but it could have been a whole lot worse and i think we're just very fortunate that it didn't end up like that in the u.s especially right now with you know the economical problems we're facing in the pandemic you know i know there was an estimate that we could see another potential 600,000 pandemic uh coronavirus cases because of the evacuations and just the fact that, you know, that's going to make it harder to keep this stuff, you know, keep us separate and all of that. And so, you know, there's a lot of risks at hand and it could have been a whole lot worse than it was. So I think we are quite fortunate in that regard. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately this trend of hurricane season getting worse and worse each year, I think is probably only going to continue. I mean, we heard it this so much last year and the year before with people saying that hurricane season would be quote, you know, worse than usual. And then we're hearing it again this year. I mean, I mean, a double hurricane is a big enough like circumstance on its own, but I mean, we've barely, you know, even started the recovery efforts for Laura and already there are two more systems sitting in the East uh, Atlantic, you know, I forget their names, but it's the one for the letter N and O I think it's like Nana and Omar something like that. But I mean, we've got two more systems that are already forming and could potentially both hit the East Coast of the United States as well, which would, you know, potentially force more evacuations and cause even more, you know, COVID-related incidents, similar to what you were saying right there, Michael. It's like the climate is slowly changing or something. I don't know, it's strange. Probably nothing, though. Yeah, nothing to worry about. The weather is definitely not angry at us for killing the planet or anything. But I think that's a good point. Matthew, the whole hurricane season seems to keep getting worse every single year. I mean, we looked at it, you know, for uh, for some context for us, we went to a school on the East Coast. and Well, not exactly the East Coast, but in that area for college. And in the time that before we had been there, it had been 15 years since they had ever canceled a day of classes for a weather-related event. In our four years, they canceled one day at least every single year we were at school. For a weather-related event. And I mean, if that doesn't show... <laughs> yeah, yeah, for weather-related events. If that doesn't show that there's some kind of problem going on in the world with our, you know, our environment and our climate, 
then I don't know what does because, you know, CNU, the school we went to, hadn't shut down for 15 years for a weather-related event. All four years we were there, they shut down. And I mean... That's, that's a the big The first deal. one was a freak uh, snowstorm, so that one, you know, unlucky. But the last two years were both September hurricanes. Um, and September hurricanes, while not, you know, uncommon events, they aren't really that common where we live. And they're certainly not usually big enough to force, you know, evacuations out of all the schools like they caused all the schools in our area to do. Well, yeah, because Newport News is a, a not not super far inland, but far enough to the point where unless a storm was severe, we wouldn't have to worry about it too much. So the fact that we had to evacuate junior and senior year is just is still nuts to me. Well, and I think the big thing to kind of you know realize is we evacuated twice junior year for hurricanes, and it, that was something that you know we never thought we'd have to do ever at CNU. Because we are, as Andre said, a bit inland in Newport News. And I think, if I remember correctly, at one point they were talking about a potential landfall in Virginia Beach for one of the hurricanes, and that had never happened before. If I remember correctly, Hurricane Florence at one point was modeled to make landfall in Virginia Beach. It ended up going down into making landfall right around the South Carolina-North Carolina border. But if it had hit Virginia Beach, that would have been the first time, I believe, a hurricane had ever made landfall in Virginia in recorded history. And that's a huge deal. Yeah, and I mean, even if we take a look at, you know, everything else that's happening weather-related outside of the hurricanes, it's just becoming more and more obvious that these, you know, once-in-a-lifetime natural phenomenons are no longer once-in-a-lifetime. They're more like once a year or, you know in our lucky case of 2020, once every other week. Gotta love 2020, man. 2020 really is the gift that just keeps on giving. (laughs) One day we'll go back to normal life, but, you know, I have my predictions for 2022 is when things will get, you know, truly back to normal. Anyone else betting on 2021 is just named 2020 Part 2? I mean, I, like... At this point, I mean, come on, September is here by the time you're listening to this, and while we're recording it, it's about two days away, and we still haven't sorted any of the problems that we've encountered in 2020. I don't think we're solving them in the last four months of the year. I'm still holding out uh, for December, actually more specifically Christmas Eve of uh, 2020, the final boss of 2020 is going to show up. <laughs> And just destroy civilization. And I think you know exactly what I'm talking about, Michael. Andre, I hope you're referencing just that one scene from SAO Abridged with Santa. <laughs> nope, that actually works really well, not. too. Man. <laughs> he is not. I know exactly what he's talking about because I sent him a meme about it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I like the SAO thing. That works really just well, too, actually. Monster Santa that's... Monster Santa telling the U.S. it's yeah, been really naughty before destroying it. At the top of his lungs, naughty. <laughs> and you just you just see Trump slowly turn around from his seat in the Oval Office and go, "What the fuck?" And then he just cuts out. Perfect. Gather around, everyone. Let's make some Christmas. <laughs> now I can't wait for this episode to be copyright so striked it... because we included that bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I genuinely think we're, you know, we're not going to be out of this until 2022. Like, we're going to still be dealing with this stuff. Obviously, everyone, like all the scientists are now saying we're going to have a coronavirus season as well as a flu season now. So we're going to be dealing with this for, you know, the foreseeable future. But I'm hoping by, you know, the end of 2021, we can have life the way that we remembered it from 2019. That would be quite nice, in my opinion. <laughs> Well, even beyond the immediate effects of COVID, I've seen stuff covering, um, like, a lot of the unemployment uh, unemployment programs they've set up in the EU running out and the, some of the industries failing. Some of the industry analysts have been saying stuff like, oh, uh, this industry won't be up back up to normal capacity until something like 2025. So even beyond, like, at least we'll be able to return to normal life probably in 2022, but I'm, I'm betting that we're going to have a recession for a while after that. Well, I mean, 
it would be shocking to think we wouldn't have some kind of economic impact with the amount of, you know, jobs that are going away now and, you know, businesses that are going under due to the coronavirus pandemic. We're going to have these effects for a long period of time. And I think that's, you know, a good place to kind of segue into our next talking point, And that's working in the pandemic. And so the three of us have had some interesting experiences with this because we are all three of us recent college grads. And so we've had different experiences trying to get in, working in, and working around the workforce currently. And I think it's just an interesting thing that we get to document and we get to experience. So I'll kind of give my side of the coin really quickly. Uh, When the coronavirus pandemic kicked us off campus at college, it was the middle of March and it was two days before I was starting my third time as an intern at a large corporation as a communication intern. And I had expected that that would then turn into a job once, you know, I've graduated and all of that. And that was kind of the plan that was sort of laid out. We weren't really sure because we had to move quickly for reasons that I won't disclose with the company to get me on board. And so I worked that until around... I guess it was it was the day after my birthday, May 29th was my last day. And so since then I've been, you know, searching for employment and it's been really difficult because of the coronavirus pandemic. So I kind of got the, you know, getting let go from a job because of coronavirus. It wasn't completely because of that, but you know, there's less money going around, so I'm sure it was harder to keep me at the corporation. And that's an interesting, you know, thing that I didn't think I was going to have to navigate because of coronavirus you know, right after I graduate. I guess I can go next if Michael's done. Um, So I was in a a pretty similar position to Michael, not entirely the same, but I I had something lined up with an NGO in D.C. that I had previously interned for. It was so it was looking like I was going to get this job uh, based on prior interviews I did during the school year. But then COVID hit and... A bunch of senior people uh, resigned and got out, and this uh, NGO was not used to since it was since it's based on international work. It was not used to just transitioning everything to online only. They caused them a lot of problems, and so I pretty much just was. They said they they lost my application, but based on what I've what I've uh, heard from other people that also applied, it just sounds like there was there was chaos in the com- within the. Uh, the organization and they just couldn't afford to take on a lot of new workers so i've i was uh left wanting for employment and i've similar to michael i've spent the the entire summer looking for employment afterwards and i've i'm fortunate that i have a a seasonal job at a pool that i've been working at for years and so i've been able to work my way up to assistant manager which pays pretty well so i have a stable source of income but Looking for work in D.C. has been tough because a lot of, especially in the international sphere, a lot of these organizations that aren't funded by the government are just hemorrhaging money, and so they really can't afford to take on new employees. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's not an uncommon story, you know, right now, especially for, like, people in our school year. Like, I'm one of the more fortunate ones in that I've been employed through most of the pandemic, although... It's funny because unlike both Andre and Michael, you know, heading into the pandemic, it looked like I would be the one looking on the outside while both of you would have been employed. Because while I was interning at the company that I still currently work at, um, for a while it was looking like maybe I wouldn't be full-time hired as they were looking for places um, to hire a comms person and they couldn't quite find, you know, teams that were willing to pay for another member on staff or they weren't able to find a place in the organization for me. But luckily, that worked out, you know, right around May or June. And so I was able to start working, you know, kind of right after we graduated. Um, So I'm definitely one of the luckier ones in that regard, because stories like yours, Michael, and yours, Andre, I've noticed from a lot of my other friends and just from talking to other people, you know, around our age, seems to be like, that's the story of the job market right now. Well, and we kind of the three of us have similar but different experiences where we all had this kind of like job anxiety at some point during the COVID pandemic. And I think it's important that, you know, 
we might not have the biggest platform ever here on the Homeless for Hire podcast, but if we can share our stories and then, you know, kind of document what's been happening with us, that might make other people feel better about themselves. Because I know for a short period of time, my girlfriend was looking for work and she felt like everyone was going to be able to find it. This was way back when the pandemic, you know, first started. And she thought everyone was going to be able to find it. And her frame of reference was me. I was working full time while finishing my undergraduate degree. And, you know, she, you know, that's hard to deal with. And so now she's got a job and I don't. And it's kind of been flip-flopped. But it's important that, you know, there are opportunities out there for everyone. It's just you got to find them. And eventually we all will find them. And if we can kind of share how we're experiencing it that might help other people and then you know in the future we can look back on this and go okay if there's another event like this here's what happened to all of these you know people who knows where we'll be maybe i'll be a recruiter at some point and i'll you know look back on the documented experiences that the three of us had and go okay this college student who you know is coming into a workforce during a you know a pandemic or whatever it may be an economic crisis i might look at them a little bit you know more more intently than I might have, you know, before something like this happened. And whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but it's it's an important thing for this country because, you know, college grads are the future of the workforce, whether you like that or not, we are, you know, in 10 years, we're going to be the main, like our generation is going to be the main corporate workforce. And, you know, it'd be nice if we could get started now, but currently it's difficult. And hopefully in the future, we'll have better systems in place to help help people who've just graduated into yeah, situations but, like this. Oh, go ahead, Andre. Oh, sure. I was just going to say, it's it's just tough because, and this is purely anecdotal in my case, but if you're an employer in, let's say, D.C., and you're looking at potential, uh, potential new employees, you're looking at all these applicants, and you see someone like me who's, you know, I, I, I compare pretty favorably to a lot of recent graduates. I have a lot of internship experience under my belt, yada, 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 all that stuff. And you say, okay, he's fairly capable for someone his age. Do I take him on or do I take this other guy who's also applying for this entry-level position, but he has a master's and he's worked three to five years in, you know, a similar organization? And it's just, it's no contest for the guy who's who's looking at people for, for this job. I'm just not going to be able to compete. And I feel like a lot of people are feeling that struggle, at least in the D.C. area. Well, I can absolutely echo that, Andre. I've been in interviews that for entry-level positions that... You know, I've been one of the last like four candidates and, you know, I'll be told I didn't get the job and I'll ask for feedback. Why? Because you should always do that, by the way, if you get turned down from a job, just say, hey, what can I improve upon next time? And a lot of the times it was you got unlucky. There was somebody who had, you know, five years of experience managing in this field, had just gotten laid off and wanted to apply just to get back in the workforce. And, you know. That's a difficult pill to swallow, but who knows? We might be in yeah, that same position Yeah, but you guys are both touching on something that's a problem that's kind of been growing these last couple of years and is coming to a head now kind of because of the economic circumstances, which is the fact that the way our workforce used to revolve around was, you know, college degrees got you that extra step, right? You could get a job with a high school degree, but the college degree got you kind of, you were expected to use those four years to get more knowledge and that would in theory set you up for a better job. Well, the problem was is that then everyone started getting college degrees, whether they could afford them or not, because everyone wanted the extra step. And so now the extra step is the master's degree, which is for, you know, two to four more years of schooling, depending on how long you do it. And so this just sets your, you know, your calendar back an extra two to four years for how, you know, not only what types of jobs you qualify for, but how long you're sitting in them as well. And all of a sudden, you know, jobs that 10 years ago your degree would have been fine for are now going to people who have a better degree than you. And the jobs that the jobs that are left now are the jobs that, you know, would have formerly gone to people who, you know, maybe didn't even graduate to go to college. And so now, of course, this trickle down effect means that people who don't even go to college are getting, you know, kind of screwed out of jobs that normally they would have been just fine to compete in. And I gotta say, Matthew, uh, what? And I, I've talked about this a little bit with my uh, with my parents, but I'm just wondering what happens when we get to the point where getting your master's is the new norm, and the majority are doing it. How how do you stand out then? Are we gonna invent another tier of schooling, and you just have to keep going to school? You gotta keep improving your degree to stay competitive. Well, there already is that next tier. Think about it. You know, you can be you can get your bachelor's in. 
uh, biology pre-med. You go to master's school, you get a master's degree in biology, and then you go to get your doctorate and your PhD. So there already is that next step. It's just when is that going to expand to things like, you know, I don't need a doctorate in communications to be a communication specialist. But there is a doctorate in communications, and at what point am I going to need to get that to get just an entry-level communication well, specialist job? I mean, this might be a case of this is, you know, the best bad news you'll ever hear. But I actually don't think it'll ever get to the point where you're going to need a PhD to compete in an entry-level job market. And the reason I say that is because by the time that we would have reached that point, it's going to be unsustainable in terms of like the amount of money you're going to need to put into education in order to even qualify for jobs, the whole system is going to collapse because already we're put, we're kind of bursting at that level. Like we're not, we haven't quite popped it. Like we haven't actually caused systemic distress with it, but you can kind of feel the, the growing pains of having to afford, you know, at least four years of, you know, a good college education and potentially even six or seven at another uh, institution for another degree. Um, people can't afford that just to get a job that pays entry-level money, you know. Like, yes, yeah, some people can, but not enough people to be working in the workforce can afford to pay that much money just to get, you know, what formerly would have been an entry-level position. And so if it ever gets to the next tier where, you know, we start pushing masters and up into PhDs to qualify for these jobs it's not even going to be sustainable. Like, people won't be able to afford to go to school anymore. And it might reset it, but I feel like it's going to cause a lot of harm, both economically and society, if we ever reach that point. Well, and the biggest thing to note is if we do really want change, we need a systemic change. We can't just, you know, corporations aren't just going to decide they no longer want to require a master's degree for positions that they're requiring it for. So what's going to have to change is something at the you know, the national level. And that's a good lead into our next little topic for today is the uh, Democratic National Convention was about a week and a half ago at this point, And the Republican National Convention was a little less than a week ago by the time this episode comes out. And those are huge events in the U.S., especially with everything in the world right now and all the political unease and unrest. These were some big events and they, you know, in some ways, they were not what I'll be was honest, expected. The, the Democratic one was better than I was expecting, both in terms of production of it, because I was a little skeptical of like how it would feel all coming together, and the presentation of it. I thought their messaging was um, better than I was hoping for, while also, I mean, I always struggle with feelings of like how genuine these conventions always are in terms of how they present themselves versus how what their underlying messaging really is but this one felt more genuine than i was expecting to some degree but i'd love to hear more thoughts on it i think that issue of uh, how genuine how genuine the speakers are at both of these conventions is, is always sort of been an issue just because i always kind of think of these conventions as not not trying to sell you a product but almost a service like you're trying to sell yourself as this candidate, so you're going to put yourself forward in the best possible light. You're going to mention all this anecdotal stuff about positive things you've done in your life and how this will feed back into your policies and how you're going to be able to effectively lead. But then you get into office and you, you, you the voter, just kind of have to wonder how much of this is actually going to transfer through and how much of it is just PR speak that's going to, I'm trying to use to sway, right, exactly. sway voters to my side. Well, and speaking of those swing voters, I actually saw a poll today that was really interesting. It was the Biden and Trump in swing states. And currently Biden has 48% and Trump has 47% in swing states, according to, I think it was NBC that ran the poll. I can't remember for sure. I'm trying to remember now. But yeah, it was 48 Biden and 47 Trump. So it's a close race. And I wonder how much the conventions had to do with that because, you know, we just talked about the Democratic National Convention. The Republican National Convention was quite, you know, divisive. They had it in person, unlike the Democratic National Convention, and they had it like a rally. And there were a couple thousand people at, I believe, the White House South Lawn and sitting next to each other in close proximity, which is what is usually happening. But we do have a pandemic going on, so... Is that a show of strength? Is that a stupid idea? You know, 
there's differing opinions on it. And I think, I think we're going to look back on that decision to have the Republican National Convention in person as yeah, potentially this a turning point in the swing states. I'm not unique in mentioning this because other people have already pointed this out. But across the the conventions, we saw a trend where the the Democratic convention kind of addressed coronavirus as an ongoing issue that, you know, needed to be dealt with, you know, in a kind of empathetic manner. And then the Republican convention talked about coronavirus too, but they talked about it as if it had been solved or was over or, you know, we were kind of already over most of it. And so we're just, we're like seeing the back end of it. And these two realities cannot both exist. One or the other has to. And so I think that'll be super interesting to see which reality voters align themselves with. Can we talk about how the Republican National Convention talked more about socialism than they did coronavirus? It, it felt like they, they thought that, like they scripted this back when they thought Bernie would be the, the nominee, but they had to, you know, they had to workshop yeah, it and, and I apply think to Biden a little instead. Bit on kind of, I mean, as much as I didn't really want Biden to be the nominee, the kind of genius that is making Biden your nominee for the Democrats, because it's so hard for Trump to hit Biden where Trump wanted to hit Biden, because you notice he kind of flip-flops between messaging, right? He either talks about Biden as like this do-nothing Democrat who can't get anything done, but in the same breath then he talks about how he's, you know, this extreme social liberal, you know, socialist liberal who wants to change all of our systems and create havoc through our entire system. And once again, both of those things can't simultaneously be true about a single person. And it it comes down to that rhetoric that you mentioned of Trump, you know, saying he's a do nothing Democrat and, you know, calling him sleepy Joe Biden, which I think is a hilarious nickname because Joe Biden does actually look sleepy, but you know, still terrible. It's just, it's one of those things where, if you're going to insult somebody, you have to consistently insult them. You can't insult somebody and say, like, I can't say, Matthew, you're a slow dimwit. And then my next sentence say, but you're smarter than me. That I'm not insulting you then. I'm calling myself a slow dimwit. And that's kind of, you know, what happens when Trump does things like that. And I think you're absolutely right, Andre, that it seemed like he kind of wrote it for Bernie. But then well, actually... I mean- it happened to be Biden, and then he just didn't rewrite it. You I think that's why Tim... Oh, go ahead, Matthew. I was just... I, I, I don't know if this is off-topic, but I kind of wanted to bring up why I think Tim Scott's speech stood out to so many people and was, like, one of the highlights of the Republican convention because he didn't... I mean, there was some, there was some stuff about... Um, you vote, you know, voting for your party versus the Democrats, some us versus them stuff, but that's typical. But he kind of... I want to say almost took a more a more hopeful tone and was and was more focused on positive policy for the future compared to a lot of other speakers at the Republican convention. And I think he all I think one of the reasons he was a highlight was because focusing on this policy driven stuff sort of gave a lot of Republican voters a, a reason to be hopeful for their party and to stick with their party. Right. And I think you've touched on it exactly. One of the reasons why we keep seeing that spent that speech particular mentioned a lot. I know that's mentioned in like all the summaries I read and it was, you know, kind of being talked about a lot in the discourse is simply because as opposed to like appealing to ideological differences, he was speaking purely on policy things. And those are very physical things that, you know, we can see in action. And so those things tend to be easier for listeners to grasp to as well, because, you know, they very much relate to the issues we want to see touched on. Yeah, I think a vo- voters are also so eager to hear about this policy-driven stuff because it, it presents a higher degree of accountability for the speaker, for the potential candidate, which is also why, you know, uh, candidates might want to stay away from going into too much detail about policy-driven stuff because then if they get in office and they can't follow through with what they've said during their campaigning, they can get lambasted by voters and it can lead to a lot of backlash, but... It's you have to you have to balance that line, especially right now. Like people need to hear that there's there's some solid plans for the future. Well, and I think maybe another reason that we keep coming back to that particular speaker is because if you look at the rest of the speakers on the Republican side, they all have an a inherently vested interest in Trump. And what I mean by that is, you know, Donald Trump, obviously 
it's him. He's going to want him, you know, to promote him. Mike Pence is his VP candidate. Obviously, he's going to want Donald Trump to win so that he can stay as VP. And obviously, all of the Republicans that are speaking should want Trump to win. They're giving him the nomination for re-election. And then you look at the others, and I think five others have the last name of Trump as the speakers. And so, of course, they're going to speak, you know, about, you know, everything Trump does is perfect. But then we had another speaker come in and talk about policies and talk about, you know, what republic being a Republican is and what that means and what we're going to do in the future. And I think that was just frankly, so it was different the from the rest of the speakers as well, that it was refreshing. You know, held in a controversial location. It wasn't, you know, one of Trump's family members. He did a lot less of, you know, kind of what Andre was speaking on earlier of just, you know, shouting socialism at the top of his lungs at the crowd kind of thing. So I think in, in all of those regards, he's, I think he is looking very forward future into his own political career. And so he wants to set himself up now that he got this huge platform, you know, on speaking at the RNC to say, hey, this is what I believe for the Republican Party. These are the ideals that I want to set forward and the policies that I think we should be believing in. You know, if this is the kind of direction you want to go for. This is why we vote Republican. And then the more specific undertone to that message is why you should vote for him specifically in his own state. And if he ever goes for a potential presidential run. Well, no matter who goes for a presidential, you know, candidacy after Trump on the Republican side is in for in for a tough time, because, you know, no matter what happens, for better or for worse, Trump has changed the Republican Party. And that's never going to we're never going to be able to truly just jump back to the way the Republican Party was set up before then. Yeah, which I mean, just is natural on one hand. Parties grow, parties change and evolve. I mean, if you look at the Democratic and Republican parties, even just 50 years in the past, they'd be very, very different from the parties we have today. So it's not inherently a negative thing, but then you look in the in the context of what Trump has done and the fallout the Republican Party is going to have to deal with afterwards. And yeah, I think there's there's some reason to be pessimistic. I think the biggest issue with that out of, you know, all of the changes that have come to the Republican Party because of this, in terms of, you know, regaining power politically, the Republican Party now has to deal with the fact that I genuinely don't think any Democrats are going to vote Republican anymore. So, you know, sometimes when there's a Democratic candidate and a Republican candidate and you're like, let's say you're a registered Democrat or a registered Republican, but you don't really like your candidate all that much, you might vote the other way. But now Democrats are so distrusting of the Republican Party because of Trump that I don't know if that's going to happen that way anymore. And that makes it very difficult to win elections because if you're just winning elections based on making sure all the Republicans vote for you and all the swing people vote for you, that's a lot harder than reaching towards everyone. Well, uh, it's tough to say, just because we don't know exactly how, what what the, sh what the exact sh size and shape of the fallout from Trump is going to take when he exits office, uh, what party leadership is going to do, you know, what they might change in terms of their party ideology to try to counteract that fallout which specific candidates are going to show up in certain states. So, I, you know, overall, it's it's okay to be a little pessimistic, but I also think just that the future is so uncertain right now, and it's really up in the air and depends on what both the party as a whole does and what individual candidates do, that it's, it's going to be tough to say how, how exactly voters are going to react to this in, let's say, like, five years. So I think we've covered kind of our... Our three more serious topics today, you know, there's a lot going on in the world, so we want to bring some, you know, more fun and lighthearted stuff to the end of our podcast. So we're going to kind of take a little change of lanes here <laughs> and start talking about some fun stuff. Let's start with something that happened last week, the Nintendo Direct. And we have some strong opinions on that being terrible. So we'll get into that. And I want to, I want to just start by posing a question to Andre. And this is kind of a philosophical question. If you were running the Nintendo Directs, in fact, let me give you a person to be. Let's say you're Doug Bowser and you're localizing a Nintendo Direct to America. Do you lead with the only game that is popular? 
uh, out of the whole direct. Do you so, lead with that? That's so tough to say because on one hand, it's like you want to you want to grab viewers so they try to stay and watch the entire direct. But then on the other hand, we look at the contents of the rest of the direct after that after that Kingdom Hearts uh, melody of I I can't even remember the full subtitle of it melody of something. Um, there just wasn't a whole lot there. So. And especially after the last Nintendo Direct, which I personally liked, but if you weren't a, a an SMT fan, you know, I wouldn't blame you for being disappointed, at least a little bit. And so you wonder, well, how many people are just going to see Direct Mini now or Partner Direct and just click off? Because people have been kind of starved for big Nintendo games since Paper Mario or So, Michael, came. I actually think that was putting the Kingdom Hearts on at the front July. was a fine idea, and here's why. So, prior to the Direct, I don't know if other people heard about it, but it seemed to catch at least Andre and I off guard. Like, we didn't even know that this Direct was dropping, right? And so then, when, when you told us about it, right, the first thing we click on, the first thing title we see is Kingdom Hearts, which is a very popular game, um, the melody of whatever, as Andre was saying. And so it's a very popular game. That is the hook that gets people into the Direct, I think. And I don't, and I especially think when you drop something like unexpected that people aren't looking out for specifically, it's good to start with something as hype as like a Kingdom Hearts announcement would be. Um, because without something of that level, you risk it getting lost because you didn't do any prep work to announce it or to drive up hype for it beforehand. The problem I have with this direct is as though, although it gets like a 10 out of 10 for staying on theme, the theme was kind of bad. Like, they were all, like, music rhythm type games, which is a genre that has a lot of potential, but when you throw that many games back to back, and especially in their presentation of them, it seemed like they were, like, just announcing the same game, but again for a different, you know, franchise or company. And, like, each one had, like, small twists or differences between them, but they were essentially, like, repackaging, you know, Kingdom Hearts musical melody, but again for x company and then they did it like eight times through the whole direct and so by the time you finished watching the whole thing like yeah it was short and what was it like eight minutes but by the time you were done watching you were like well okay but i'm not buying like any of these or if i am it's probably just the kingdom hearts one and i want to emphasize and this is sort of like it goes back to the damned if you do damned if you don't this kingdom hearts game which is just a spin-off was already announced for other platforms before this Direct. And yeah, they said that you have that, I think, up to eight-player uh, co-op mode on the, that's exclusive to the Switch version, but I feel like for a game that's going to be multi-platform anyway, it's how big, of a, how big of a selling point is that really? And that's all you've really got. I don't want to downplay the other games in the announcement too much, because I know that every series has its fans that absolutely love it, and if you love some of those games, then more power to you. But I don't yeah, know. when Nintendo I see directs is, like this, I this look, COVID I see situation really seems to have hit they them have hard. Game releases, and they feel like they have to talk about them because they need to promote them. But they don't have a good format right now to promote them in. I kind of see why they went with like these direct mini directions. You know, like the previous one being focused on. Um, God, I can't even think about it because it didn't leave that big of an impression on me. But keeping them like to similar themes, basically. So like this one was obviously the music theme, and then there's the one centered around uh, Atlas uh, previously, and then whatever the other one is, I can't think of. Um, so thank you. Yes, that one. Um, so while I understand like why they made the decision to kind of go in this direction, and it kind of makes sense when you're like pitching an idea to a board kind of thing. They're, they're running into this problem, it seems, pretty consistently, where they have one hype thing, and then the rest of it is filler content that would normally be presented in, like, 30 seconds or a minute, you know, rapid fire, and, like, the people who love those titles would gravitate toward those titles and be excited, and for the larger audience, you know, they could kind of just wait it out for the next hype title. There is no next hype title in any of these, so they kind of, all the directs just kind of fizzle out by the end, and then when they're over, you're just like, well... That was a great one-minute direct and seven minutes of filler content, you know? Well, and my my biggest thing with this direct was it seemed there's been a lot of speculation that Nintendo's been holding back on some of its, like, company-owned IPs because they're going to release them 
for Switch soon, like all the information on it. And this seemed like the perfect place to release a Rhythm Heaven game, which they haven't done in forever, but everyone keeps seeming to think they're going to. And then they didn't. And so I was sitting there watching it going, okay, so we've got all these Rhythm games. At the very end, they're going to just show like a little graphic or something or like a little pop-up of Rhythm Heaven and be like, ah, coming in 2022, we've just started working on this. And that's what I thought was happening with why they were doing all the Rhythm games was they were going to, oh, they've got a new rhythm-based IP, and they also happen to have this set of rhythm games that are coming out soon. So, you know, that makes sense. And then that didn't happen. So I was just left sitting there going, okay, so I don't care about any of these games, really, except for Kingdom Hearts Melody of Memories. And, yes, Melody of Memories. Yeah. And then Just Dance, I don't care about, but I understand a lot of people do. Michael, I'm angry I didn't think of Rhythm Heaven. Like, I'm angry at myself for forgetting about that and how perfect it would have been. So now I'm even more disappointed in this direct. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think I know, that was how that I thought. I watched it and went, well, that sucked. I thought I was getting because, Rhythm Heaven, Unless finally. they do something super weird. Because, as you said, this was kind of the perfect time to announce it, if they were working on it. And so... There's potential that they're gearing up for a direct mini where they're like, hey, here's a bunch of nintendo yeah. ips and I'm it sorry, goes in there but if, it, if they do that and it's I'm, not in there my we're personal not money is on game it's again dead. ever i want to pose a question to you guys do you think we're getting another like a big holiday title other than pikmin 3 deluxe or is that are we just not getting anything because pikmin 3 deluxe comes out i think close to the end of october and then that's the last title mm-hmm. we know about i think i have a theory on this so there's been some rumors about the mario collection And there's also been a lot of rumors on a Pokemon Diamond Pearl remake recently. And there was actually some leaks this morning on the day we're recording this. Basically, all but confirming that we're going back to Generation 4 for a Pokemon game coming out soon. And I think that's going to be the holiday release or a holiday announcement. So it's either going to come out around Christmas or it's going to be announced around Christmas. How reliable are those leaks? Because, like, if, if I, I didn't get Sword and Shield, but I know they're not even done with the DLC yet, and I think the main team's working on that, so... Or did are, I wonder, are they having, like, another team work on the remakes, or are the, is the main team splitting their efforts between well, the, the, sh- the DLC for Sword and Shield and the Diamond Pearl remakes? Because that seems kind of soon. Well, rumors, rumors on the Diamond and Pearl remakes started, like, two and a half years ago. So and so it could be something DLC they've been, like, Sword working on behind the scenes for a while already. June? July? I think it was June. Um, and the second one, I think, is slated for the fall. So that does leave room open for the winter as well, for a holiday. For Pokemon. It leaves enough room for it. That's just my theory, though. I don't know. I My grandpa does not work at Nintendo. To kind of jump back to the Mario collection, I've I've seen some of the rumors for that, and honestly, it just seems too good to be true. Like I could, I would based on what Nintendo has done with the Zelda remax or not even remakes, they were remasters pretty much uh, for Wii U. I feel like they would really just totally go for the we're gonna release each of these 3D Mario games separately with a little bit of polish for sixty dollars each because we know they'll sell. Except for maybe yeah, let's be re- sixty four, which is kind of old and would probably need some more work on it, but. Careful saying that, by the way. Everyone's going to come I'm after just saying, the way 2020 has been going, I don't expect nice things. I, I, I don't hate it. But don't that would be me, the nice thing the year, at least redeemable for, like, a day if they did that. So to kind of piggyback off what Andre said about them releasing them separately, what I think they're actually going to do is I think they're going to release uh, two collections, quote-unquote collections, or three quote-unquote collections, and they're going to do the 2D... No, not the 2D Mario games, sorry. Uh, The 3D Mario games, like, so, you know, Super Mario 3D World, and the... There's one other that I can't remember. Or maybe it was 2D. I don't know, but I think they're going to release that. Yes, 3D Land and 3D World, I think, are going to be one. Then the other collection that I think they're going to do is Galaxy 1 and Galaxy 2. And then I think they're going to do 64 and Sunshine, and those are all going to be $60 each. Hmm. Do you think they'd like stagger the release of those then, or would they just release all three of them onto the market at once? I think they would 
release them all onto the market at once or if they stagger it's going to be like two weeks in between it's not going to be a long time i could maybe maybe see that happening i don't know this this direct just did not made me optimistic for nintendo when when a kickstarter for a game that i have funded releases like a backer exclusive poll for me to do and gets me more hype for that than an entire direct you know you have a problem Well, and moving along, we'll segue into our last topic. So, we're, Matthew and I at least, are uh, TV buffs. We like to watch quite a bit of TV, and I know, Andre, you do too at times. And so we kind of wanted to just kind of talk a little bit about Netflix like to preface this slash other streaming service buff. shows that are really binge-worthy during the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic. Oh, man. I'm going to be exposed so hard. <laughs> you are now a TV buff because I've said so. He's an anime buff. <laughs> it's okay. I will too, Matthew. Uh, I'll start out with something that's... I know I don't have a Netflix subscription, but I know it's on there, and it's already been hugely popular, and tons of people have watched it, but if you haven't yet, you need to. Uh, watch Avatar The Last Airbender. Especially right now, there's no better time. You're stuck in your house anyway. It's a masterpiece. Go watch it. If I keep talking about it, I'll talk about it for the rest of the of our times yeah. and i don't want to do that so just go I've been watch working my really way through good. avatar again, watch legend of korra too you know, that's also on instead netflix of discovering now. new shows i needed to watch avatar while it was on netflix that's where i sit <laughs> it's just too good understandable it is really it is really good and especially it's a very very hopeful sort of series despite dealing with horrible stuff like a genocide or a hundred year long war it, it still manages to overall be a positive show where the characters go through a positive growth and yeah. emerge Plus at the also, end of the series to lead you know, happy disasters lives which i think is a message we all, all use right in real now. life you know the show's just too good i don't know how they did it <laughs> <laughs> They're profits, oh, man. I'm, I'm telling you. And they even include, they managed to be profits while in, uh, including funny cabbage guy who always gets his cart of, destroyed. Genius. I was, I was going to say, if you're a fan of Rick and Morty, I know that's a very polarizing um, community right there. Um, I'm not going to suggest Rick and oh, Morty. Go ahead. Go ahead I am going to suggest, though, that Dan Harmon's other animated show, I think it's on Hulu, <laughs> not quite Netflix, um, Solar Opposites. Um, I actually watched through it. It only took me like two days i think maybe three because there's only one season and it's not a particularly long season i think it's only like 10 episodes or 11 episodes something like that but it's actually kind of funny um like it's very turn your brain off and just kind of enjoy the show type of humor and so that can be really cathartic you know when i try not to be depressed by the world in general all right so it kind of starts and oh, you're following the family What's the premise aliens, for people like okay? me that aren't familiar um, with the And they the have show, escaped their home planet because Harman. it got blown up. And these are not spoilers because they announced this in like the first 20 seconds of the show. Um, and so they land, all, all the inhabitants of this planet flee to different planets. And the one we're following lands on Earth specifically. And so we're following this family of aliens as they try to integrate themselves into our society. And they can't decide whether they like Earth or whether it is the worst piece of planet scum in the entire galaxy yeah and if nothing else like it's funny a reasonable struggle to have that's not that does sound pretty interesting really yeah really different from rick and morty too which i think is probably a good yeah, thing full disclosure, Dan, i, I mean in my personal opinion rick and morty, dan seems to, that, to be kind of getting tired almost of making rick and morty has right now solar opposites is very uh surface level and while it makes commentary on like some social issues that are happening, because I don't think Dan can resist doing that, um, it tackles them through humor than through, you know, Rick's angst. <laughs> yeah, it, that's definitely definitely different, because I, I have seen the last season of Rick and Morty, and while it's not quite as consistently dark as season three, there's still some some darker elements. Well, moving from a, a sort of dark show like Rick and Morty in some regards. It's also a comedy, but you know. <laughs> Moving on to kind of a more 
just tell us the show, Michael. I, want, I don't <laughs> actually want to say light because it deals with some heavy themes, but a more fun show. I don't want to say more fun either because Rick and Morty is quite fun. Just another show, actually. Uh, actually Lucifer just released season five on Netflix, and I'm a big fan of this show. So have either of you watched any of it? Okay, well, first of all, Matthew, this is the perfect show for you and perfect. Anna. Because it is your level of, like, asshole humor is just in the show. It just is the show. Uh, <laughs> and so it's based on it's based on a DC comic character from the comic Sandman in Lucifer Morningstar. And basically, he's the devil, and he goes around solving crimes and just making an ass out of himself. And it's it's a really good show. It deals with a lot of heavier topics, like, you know... Uh, racism in America is dealt with on a couple of times. Uh, gay rights and that kind of stuff is like brought up and they talk about it as like a, they're a very inclusive show and all of that. And so it's, it's got like that aspect, but it's also like a comedy show and there's also some serious tones. It's just a good overall mm-hmm. show and it's a lot of fun to kind of watch as a episodic show. If you're looking for something like that. I know it's kind of old news, and I haven't actually watched this, but I've heard you and Anna talk about this positively, Matthew. Uh, would you recommend yeah, The, the Witcher for people to binge watch? Because again, I've only thing, played I the games. The I haven't Witcher. seen the show. But from what you've told um, me, you've got a lot of good building, things to say about it. It's just as good as Game of Thrones, but it doesn't hit that same level of like politics or yet. Because um, you know they've only had one season to develop so far, although they're working on season two as soon as they're able to. So we might get a season two sometime next year. But season one is a lot of fun. The episodes are an hour long, so not a binge in one night type of show, but definitely a binge in less than a week type of show. And I think the characters are well-developed. I came in kind of skeptical because most of the shows that I've experienced or heard about that have been adapted from video games have been pretty poor. Um, But I I was enjoyed this one. Speaking of a video game getting adapted to a television show, another great binge-worthy show, in my opinion, is Castlevania. You know, it's kind of got a little bit of that that video game story because it is based on the characters from the video game, but they take their own direction with it, and I think it's it's really cool. It is very dark and very gory, so if you don't like that, do not watch Castlevania, but I think it's a it's one of those shows where, you know, it's witty, so it's got a bit of humor, but then it's also a serious show, and I like that a lot. Yeah, I'm so torn on the Castlevania show because on the other hand, on one hand, it's it's a high quality show that I enjoyed, and it, it does a good job of representing the games pretty faithfully while while at the same time doing its own thing, which is pretty impressive. But the fact that this is probably the only major Castlevania related thing we're going to get out of Konami for the foreseeable future just makes me kind of sad. But that that's just me though. <laughs> Rest in peace. I mean, fair enough. I'd much rather have a <laughs> maybe in twenty twenty one a new Castlevania game, but I don't think we're getting that. It's not happening this year. <laughs> maybe the if redemption not, year. Never. <laughs> so the last show I kind of want to mention. I don't know if you guys have others, but this one is one that me and my girlfriend have been watching currently, and it's kind of sad. It's going to go off of. Netflix on September 6th so just a couple days after this podcast goes out but I wanted to talk about it anyways because it's very interesting it's called Once Upon a Time and it's basically just a retelling of a bunch of fairy tales and you know the stories and then it's got their it's got its own thing going on but it's it's one of those fantasy shows where some of it is so bad you just kind of laugh at it but then other parts are really interesting like some of the characters are really well written like I think if you've seen the show, I think Rumpelstiltskin is one of my favorite fictional characters in television ever. He's just portrayed really well in the show. And I think, you know, shows with good characters are always fun to watch. And so I think it's a it's a good watch. Yeah, it is the going only off two of Netflix, but if you can find it somewhere else, really popular I think it might be going years, on NBC's new streaming them, thing. You've been living under a rock somewhere, which is Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Place. Both of those shows are 10 out of 10 fantastic. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, more of a comedy um well they're both pretty comedic actually but the good place it also has some really cool um like ethical dilemmas and the way they deal with different uh, systems of ethics and psychology and things like that is really cool it almost 
becomes an educational show whilst not ever feeling like school. Well, and I can echo that about The Good Place. It is a very good Plus, show. And if you're looking for a Kristen show that awesome. has a start and a finish, like, as an The actress, Good Place is completed. So if you have a Hulu subscription, you can watch the entirety of it and get all of it. Oh. Uh, yeah, she's very good. I get this right. It's... And who plays, who plays Michael? What's his name? Um, He's really good. It is Ted Danson. I just looked it up. Yeah. I have no well, idea. I think what the he won awards for I can his picture performance him in my head. In the good place too. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, but he's phenomenal in it. So. Yeah. I think he did. I think he won some Peak award show. for the last. Highly season. recommend to Andre. <laughs> and Kristen Bell has won like four awards with it or something. Wait, Andre hasn't seen that. I haven't. Andre, what are you doing? <laughs> Not watching the right shows, apparently. Well, I think that's just about going to do it for us today on the Homeless for Hire podcast. We had some fun. We hope you enjoyed listening to us ramble on about some different topics, some serious, some more lighthearted. If you like this style, let us know. If you don't, also let us know. Uh, That way we can make changes that, you know, our several listeners can appreciate in some kind of way.